Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? It's great to see you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7 is where we left off a couple weeks ago. And if you missed last week, we had the great privilege to have our friend, Dr. Conrad Mbewe, come and be with us. And I just cannot highly commend his messages last week, in particular in the morning when he spoke on Psalm 95 and true worship. That message has just continued to resonate in my mind and my soul this week. And thinking about what a privilege it is to gather together with you and how vital this is in the life of a Christian. Hey, as you're finding John chapter 7... Let me mention uh, that I am so thankful for our children's ministry volunteers, members of our church uh, who serve uh, usually once every five weeks and minister good gospel teaching to our children. And uh, that's not an easy task on the Sunday that you're assigned to do that. And I'm just so thankful. You know, every church kind of has a culture and a niche, so to speak. And one of the things that God has given this church is a large number of younger families with lots of children. And so we have the great privilege to minister the gospel to kids. And uh, many of our members are getting back into engaging and serving in children's ministry after uh, about a year or so in 2020, in the beginning parts of 2021, that we were not able to do that. So I'm just really thankful. Uh, for our children's ministry volunteers. And as you pick up your children or as you see somebody in a blue shirt, man, just, just thank them. And if you're a member of our church and you're not, uh, you're not on that bandwagon, man, get on it. Uh, we need your help. It's just a great privilege. So praise God for that. Well, John chapter 7, we're going to read the first 13 verses here in just a moment. And here's my, my plan on how we are going to digest this text There's a lot going on in John chapter 7, a lot going on in the first 13 verses. I think we're going to skim over a good bit of it because I want, for the sake of what I think is most important for us as a congregation this morning, is to really wrestle with one main point in this text, and it comes from Jesus' own words in the middle of our passage. We live in a culture in America where most of us have grown up in a time when the message of the gospel and Christianity and the ethos and the ethics that come from it are relatively accepted, have been relatively accepted in our culture. And for the first time, I think in most of our lives, that is starting to shift a bit. We are finding ourselves in much more of a hostile position with the surrounding society and culture around us. And in many ways, we are, we are just beginning to experience what our brothers and sisters around the world have experienced all of their lives. Just this past week, I was away at a conference in North Carolina, and I spoke to a brother who is a pastor in Ireland, one of the places where uh, the, the Reformation took hold. And he was talking about the hostility of the culture against the gospel in a place like Ireland. I was chatting on an app, a secure app, with pastors in India and Cuba this week, 
talking about ways that we can encourage them and support them. And I think we all know that the setting in those countries, in India and in Cuba, are far more hostile than likely most of us in this room have ever faced. And in our text this morning, I think the, the central question, the, the, the largest point that jumps out, of us, out at us is this question, why does the world at large hate Jesus and his gospel? And so I want, us to, I want us to grapple with that question. And Jesus, I think, directly answers that question. So that'll be question number one that we'll look at after we work through the text. Why does the world hate Jesus? And then secondly, what are we to learn from this, this in, our, in our context? So let me pray, and then let's, let's get into it. Lord, uh, I need your help. I feel... Just weak and um, needy this morning as I come to your text and as I stand before my brothers and sisters and friends that are here. So help me, I pray. Help me decrease. I pray that you would increase. I pray that we would see Jesus today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do wonderful things with your word. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read, start reading, and we'll stop along the way, explain the text briefly, and then answer these two questions. Why does the world hate Jesus, and what can we learn from it? Verse 1, after this, now remember, this is after Jesus has has fed the 5,000, actually many more than that, in the beginning of John chapter 6, and he's walked on the water, and then he preached this really hard sermon at the end of John 6 that we concluded with a couple weeks ago. John 6, one of the the great chapters really in all of the New Testament, certainly in the Gospel of John, a, a real pinnacle, a mountain peak of John. And here now, John is giving us this sense that a, a bit of time has eclipsed. Now remember, John's gospel is a bit unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we often call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That word synoptic is just a kind of fancy word, meaning seeing together. So there's a lot of continuity in the timeline in the first three gospels, whereas John is less concerned about giving a kind of chronological a narrative of the ministry and life of Jesus. And here's the way I look at it. I don't mean this to be irreverent in any way, but John is kind of like looking at themes or sort of the greatest hits in the life of Jesus in order to make some theological points about who Jesus is as God in the flesh so that at the end of the Gospel of John, the ultimate purpose of John's Gospel is so that John 20 He says, so that you might believe, and believing in him, you might have life in his name. And so when you see the passing of time in John, don't think that in John chapter 7, we're just immediately after this hard sermon in John 6, after the feeding of the multitudes and the walking on the water. This is probably a number of months after that. In fact, it's tipped off just by when he talks about this feast. So after this, I made it three, two words into the first... Uh, You're thinking, oh man, oh man. No, I'll pick up the pace. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And remember, we're tipped off to that in John chapter 5 where 
They're starting to get angry with Jesus because they sense that he is claiming to be God. That's John 5.18. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths or tabernacles was at hand. And this was an Old Testament feast, one of numerous Old Testament feasts that had cultural and theological significance in the life of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament, like in places like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And in particular, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles was a feast celebrating the ingathering of the harvest, the actual crop, the agricultural harvest. And they would build these booths or think of it kind of like a tent or a tabernacle where they would celebrate and really have a festival, a feast, celebrating the harvest, just remembering the, the goodness of God. And, 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 and as I think about this, I think we can kind of make a, just a brief little application. The God-centeredness of the life of Israel in the Old Testament, how they were called to just give thanks to the Lord in all, even the mundane things of life, even like the ingathering of the harvest. But ultimately, it didn't just have a kind of here and now thankfulness to the Lord for what He's doing right now in this season, but it had a kind of, I think, eschatological or in times or future looking significance that the the harvest of the kingdom is coming in and Israel is to look forward to that. And now in the New Testament, we as the church in a sense are to look forward to that time when God will bring all of his people together. And there's no small significance that Jesus at the beginning of John says that he has come to tabernacle with his people. He's come. And so when we are celebrating the harvest of the Lord, we are doing it with the Lord himself who has come down to pinch a tent, so to speak, with us and tabernacle with us. Now you're really worried. I'm two verses in. That's just a little background. That's the timing of what's going on here. Verse three, so his brothers, his biological brothers, his younger brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So what's going on here in verses 3 through 5? Well, just very briefly, Jesus' biological brothers were amongst his followers, certainly. But there seems to be the hint of some animosity or frustration here, and we read in verse 5, that his brothers didn't yet believe in him, although later on we read in the New Testament that probably all of them, certainly James, his biological brother, came to faith in him and became a leader of the church uh, in the New Testament. But what's going on here? His brothers, what, what are they saying? They're, they're basically saying, look, you... you, you you are, we're on to something here. Why have you retreated into obscurity in Galilee? Go into the thick of things where the people are gathered in Judea. Go to the holy city in Jerusalem and, and, and sort of go public with this thing. And that's, that's the sense that I think the, the, the brothers are saying. And then they give them kind of a proverbial statement in verse 4 where they say, well, look, no one works in secret if he seeks to be, to be known openly. So these brothers are very likely uh, somewhat frustrated with their big brother Jesus, and they are, are wanting him. They may be, as we've stated before in the Gospel of John, in this kind of political, earthly mindset where they want Jesus to overthrow the Roman captors, so they're still not quite understanding that Jesus has not come merely to give a temporal political rescue 
but a much deeper, eternal, spiritual rescue, not from the political powers of Rome, but from the spiritual powers of sin that has made our hearts captive. So there's misunderstanding, and they're frustrated with their older brother. And as we see in verse 5, they, they don't yet believe in him because they were not yet understanding who he is and are not yet born again. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Let's pause there briefly. What's Jesus talking about when he says, my time? I think we need to just acknowledge that he's, 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 he's telling his brothers that every second of his life is ordered by the sovereignty of the Father, and Jesus is signaling to them that the time for him to be more public, the time for him to, to, to unveil, to show himself, is, is not yet here in the timing of our triune God. God. And he tells them, basically in verse 6, the end of verse 6 is a little confusing, where he says, but your time is always here. He's basically saying, look, I, I'm operating on a different timetable here, according to the unfolding plan of redemption of the Father. But you, you can go up whenever you want. It's not so important that you, you're not on that same timetable. And then in verse 7, he says something very provocative to his brothers. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And so embedded in verse 7 is, again, a very provocative statement that Jesus gives to his brothers about why the world doesn't hate them, and it's essentially because they're part of the world. He's giving us a clue as to the, at least in this moment, the spiritual state of his brothers. And he's saying, you're, the world is not offended by you because you're part of the world. But I'm not part of the world. And the world hates me. Why does the world hate me? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. I'm telling it. I'm convicting it of a sin. The world may love my works, Jesus ultimately, I think, is saying. But it hates my words. It loves when I feed them with two loaves of bread and a few fishes, and fills their empty bellies with a miracle. But it hates it when I tell them that I'm the king and they must obey me. So he says, you go up. My time's not yet fully come. And he remained in Galilee at least for a little while. But then in verse 10, that little while didn't last a long time because Jesus actually does go up shortly thereafter. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Again, not in the manner that his brothers wanted him to go up. Not showing himself, not sort of taking over, not conquering Rome, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. And again, in John, when John says the Jews, he's usually not referring just to all Jews ethnically. He's referring to the religious power structure of the Jewish people. So the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Remember, there's lots of talk about Jesus. We're probably about a year and a half, two years into his ministry at this point. Lots has happened that we can read about in the other gospels, and already lots has happened in the gospel of John. Where is he? 
verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, verse 13, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, there's much we could talk about in verses 12 and 13, but let's just, at least for the purposes of this message, suffice it to say that the crowd, the people, were misunderstanding who he is. Some said he was just a good man. And in fact, that's the opinion of much of the world, that Jesus is just a good man. He's a moral teacher. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that that just won't do. That great English intellectual Christian in the mid-1900s that says that that option of looking at Jesus and considering Jesus just a good man is philosophically and theologically not a tenable position. And that's the, ten that's the position of much of the world. And they look at Jesus and say, well, you know, he, he was a good man, a good teacher. He had came up with a good ethic. But when people say that or they have an opinion of Jesus of that, in that sort of stream, they do not realize what Jesus taught. Because Jesus didn't just teach good ethics and morality. He taught his lordship and the obedience that every person must have to him. And he taught that there is no way to the Father except but by him. Jesus cannot be just merely one option of many. He proclaims that he is God in the flesh and therefore the only option to God. And that's what's so offensive to the world. That's what's so offensive to these people, which is why some misunderstood and said he's just a good man, and others were more obvious in their, their rejection of him and said he is leading people astray. And then there were some that for fear of the Jews did not speak openly about him. Now certainly amongst these people, I would imagine, the text doesn't say, but I think it is not a, it's not a, uh, uh, too much of an assumption to say that some people in this crowd eventually became followers of Jesus. And we'll read about that as we progress through John. But let's now, with the remainder of our time, before we come to the Lord's table, Let's ask two questions. First, why does the world hate Jesus? Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, it's in our text. Jesus gives us the answer. Look at verse 7 again. He says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I mentioned just a moment ago that the crowd in John chapter 6 they loved the works of Jesus. They followed him when he fed them. They, they ran across the lake to the other side to see him. And they instinctively knew that something miraculous had happened because they asked him, how did you get here? So they're probably piecing together that something miraculous happened over the middle of the night, that this guy walked on water, he's fed us. But even after that, when he preaches a hard sermon and he shows them, hey, look, 
This physical bread that I made, it'll feed your bellies just for a moment. Or this bread that God gave Moses, your father in the Old Testament, will feed you just for a moment, but it won't ultimately sustain you. You need the bread from heaven, which is me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And of course, Jesus was speaking metaphorically about believing and receiving him by faith. And after that hard sermon, after the works that they loved, Jesus preached some words that they didn't, they left. And it revealed their hearts. Jesus is telling us clearly here why the world hates him, why much of the world hates him. He says, because I tell it, I accuse it, I condemn it. And let it know that its works are evil. Well, what do we mean by world? I want to make sure that we understand what, what I mean by world. We're not just talking about this, this big mound, this globe, this physical world, this, this, this rotating around the sun in our galaxy. In, in, in John, we, we get a picture of what he means. Just go to John chapter 1, verse 10. In the first chapter, Jesus says, in, in, or John, the, the, the uh, disciple says in verse 10, Speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So right there we have this clue that the world is not speaking about this physical ball, this celestial globe, but this, this group, this, this entity, this, this group of the people that are in the world. And then you read, go to John chapter 3 and verse 19, we see another clue that there's something more intangible to this idea in John of the world. And Jesus is speaking here in John 3, 19. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So let me give you just kind of my definition, piecing together what I think the world means and kind of layman language in this idea of John in his gospel is that the world is this cumulative fallen system of all humanity, all of us are part of it, that is under the control of Satan and is opposed to God. That's what Jesus is speaking about here when he's talking about the world that hates him. Let me show you from Ephesians chapter 2. I think we have a, a, a clear picture of what Jesus is getting at here when he talks about how the world hates him and why the world hates him. If you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, uh, you certainly are familiar with Ephesians chapter 2. I know I get kidded about how much I love Romans, in particular Romans chapter 8, in particular Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. But I think if you referenced for the past 16 years that we've been a church, all the scriptures that have ever been referenced as the main text or supporting text in any sermon, I think Ephesians chapter 2 would probably come up the highest. And here's what Paul says to the Ephesians church, the church in Ephesus, and he gives us a clear picture of what we're dealing with here. He says in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, this fallen system of humanity, following the prince of the power of the air, 
Don't be fooled by that word prince. That word prince is a negative. This is speaking of Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is painting a very bleak and biblical picture of this world, this notion of this fallen system of humanity, and it is opposed to God. It has given itself over to the control of the evil one, Satan, and it's like a stream. It's a course. It's a river that's flowing in one direction, and all of us are born into that river, and we all are being going downstream with the current of that river, and that current is controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, our adversary, the devil. Now, it is important for us to mention here that although this is all true, that doesn't mean that the world is kind of like, I know we have lots of Star Wars fans in here, and um, we'll never forget, at least some of you will never forget, that Sunday years ago, when I mixed up Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> and some of you are still having withdrawals, and I think some people left the church after that, actually, I think. Um, of all the controversial things I've ever said here, that, that may be the highest. That was the big... But let's not be mistaken. We don't live in a kind of Star Wars, Star Wars universe where there's a kind of duality between good and bad. And I'm, I don't want to get too, because I'll reveal my ignorance, but the good guys and the bad guys, they battle it out to the end. That's not the way the Bible pictures God's relationship with the kingdom of darkness or evil. God is sovereign over it all. He knows the end from the beginning. He has created everything for its purpose. Proverbs 16, 4. God says that I have created everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. In Jude, right before Revelation, the second to last book of our Bible, speaks about the devil, our adversary, being on eternal change. And although God's relationship with evil and darkness and the kingdom of Satan is at times, from our vantage point, mysterious to us, friends, it is never like God is battling it out and we wonder who's going to win in the end. He ordains, this is the old confessions of faith, which are based on scripture, which I believe is true. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, yet in a way that God is never culpable for the evil that happens. And you say, how can that be? How can God be over-sovereign, the beginning and the end, over all things, but yet not responsible even for the evil that happens within the circle of creation that he is over completely? Friends, I, I don't quite have the answer to that question, but that's where we get to the end of the road and we see the inscrutability and the mystery of the good sovereignty of God. And at times we just must cover our mouths and wonder and worship at the glory 
of our sovereign God. And that's the world. It's opposed to God. And Jesus is convicting the world here back in our text. And the world is evil. Why is the world evil? The world is evil because of our willful sin that we have all participated in. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, a, a really important verse to understand the Bible and the gospel and to understand our need for God's unmerited grace. This is what Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. And death came as a result of his sin, and so death spread to all men because, look at these last three words, because all sinned. And so in some way, Paul is making a theological point here that Adam is like the head, the fountain of all humanity, and he transgressed, he disobeyed God, he sinned again, It's mysteriously somehow under the sovereignty of God. It did not surprise God because we read about the gospel later in the New Testament where where Paul speaks of Christ being slain before the foundations of the world. So, friends, factor this in your inscrutable category. The plan for the saving of a fallen creation of the Father sending the Son and the news of that gospel, that good news being applied by the Spirit to the hearts of those who are dead in their sins was planned in the mind of our triune God before he even created the world that fell against him that needed saving. Okay, so, so just kind of factor that in, your inscrutability and your worship of a God who is on some level unable to be fully understood. Not that we can't understand him for salvation, but to be fully understood. And so, Adam, this first father of all of ours, has sinned, but it's not like we can blame Adam and say, well, why am I receiving the benefits or the disbenefits or the bad consequences of Adam's decision? Because Paul says here in the last three words of verse 12 that in some way we've all sinned. We were all in him. We were all represented by our father Adam, and we all have participated in that. And by the way, if you argue with that and you say, well, I wasn't there. Why can I be blamed for what Adam did centuries? and centuries ago, and I'll I'll just say, let's just for the sake of argument, although I think you're theologically wrong, let's just say, okay, how's your sinlessness working out for you? Have you you sinned? And so so I think not only do we have scriptural evidence, but we just kind of have personal testimony that we're all standing in that line, aren't we? Can we get a north-south on that? Okay. Anybody? Nobody's claiming to be sinless here. Okay, good. I'm glad. And we may object to that, and we may say, why is that fair? Well, friends, Paul's point in Romans chapter 5, just as a little side here, is that he's saying, if you think it's not fair that you are in Adam by your birth as a natural person, and you receive all of the consequences of Adam's sin that you are somehow in spiritually and in your life physically as you're born, 
then you should also say or object to the fact that you're in Christ and that you receive all the benefits of Christ's sinlessness in his life, death, and resurrection. So if you say, look, I don't want to participate in Adam, that's not fair. I think you need to also have the same objection. You say, well, that's not fair that I receive all the benefits of God's grace in Christ. Because that's Paul's point, is that you didn't do it. You were in Adam. You were dead in your sins. You participated in it. And you are in Christ now. And he's made you alive. And all of the bad that comes to you through Adam is, is, is yours. And all of the good now that comes to you through Christ is yours just as well. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That's his point in Romans chapter 5. But that's how the world got to the way that it is. That's why we are all born into this world. Because sin entered in, death has come, and we are now all under the sway of the enemy. By nature, by birth, that's all humanity. And the result is... This, I think, really important and central doctrine that the church has believed since the Reformation, really since the time of the apostles, and it lost it for many of the early centuries and recaptured it in the Reformation, is this doctrine of total depravity or total inability. That's the way mankind is born. What do we mean by that? This word depraved, it sounds like a horrific word. And you think to yourself, I'm not depraved, but the Bible's... The Bible's clear testimony is that all mankind, by nature, the world is before Christ, before salvation. And what does this word depraved mean? It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. It doesn't mean the world is as corrupt as it could be. It doesn't mean that every person is individually as sort of horizontally, temporally as bad as other people. But it does mean that we are corrupted by nature and unable to stand before a holy God and commend ourselves. So maybe a better way to think about total depravity is that the sin has corrupted every part of us, and it has rendered us totally unable to make ourselves right with God. That's why Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh... That is Paul's language for somebody who is not yet born again. This is, this, this is the testimony of every person who is not a believer. This is the inside. This is the theological position. This is the spiritual state of every person who is not a believer. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Paul's point, which is a commentary on the world. Now, back to John chapter 7, and Jesus is just giving us a kind of 30,000-foot description or commentary on the state of the world, is that the world hates him because he accuses it. He testifies against it. Now you're saying, I know the objection that might be in your mind. You might think, okay, Brad, that's easy for me to put somebody in a category of like a terrorist or uh, somebody who does terrible things to other people in some sort of heinous crime. It's easy for me to think of them in that way. But what about my, my neighbor down the street who's not a believer, who is a 
and I'm putting this in air quotes intentionally, a good person. How does this apply to them? They don't seem depraved. They don't seem like they can't. Can't they please God in some way? Friends, we need to think about this carefully because I want to say that, yes, in one sense, in an earthly human sense, there are some people that are, in a kind of moral sense, better than others. By that I mean it's better to be a relatively law-abiding citizen of the laws of your land than it is to fly planes into buildings. We can all understand that, and if we, if we don't understand that distinction, I think we kind of, we're out of touch with reality. But in regards to whether or not we can commend ourselves to a holy God for reconciliation with Him for eternity, none of us is righteous or able to do that in our natural state. So let's look at your good friend, your example, your good friend who's down the street who isn't ultimately a, isn't a believer. And you say, how is it that that person would be judged? They treat everybody so well. But friends, even that person in their goodness, what's the fountain, what's the source of their goodness if it's disconnected from acknowledgement and worship of the one who gave them life? I've given you this analogy many times. I think it's helpful. That's why I repeat it occasionally. Think about a, a person. Think about a baby that was in a terrible situation, and they're in an orphanage, and they're adopted by these parents, and these parents give this child every privilege, and this parent grows up, or this child grows up, and it does, this child does wonderful things, gets a, an Ivy League education, and then gets a great job making lots of money. And then this, this, this man, this baby that's grown up, starts to do lots of good things with the money that he's made. But his parents, he's sort of left his parents and now they call him, they want to know how he's doing, they want to visit him, they want to have fellowship with him, come for Thanksgiving, you know, send us a card occasionally, how are you doing? And he refuses to even acknowledge what his parents have done. In fact, he's cut off all communication and he says to his parents, you don't even exist anymore. Doesn't that color the goodness of that person? You would look at that person and you would say, yeah, he's doing some good things, but there's a kind of self-centeredness. Why isn't he acknowledging and thankful for the source of grace in his life that allowed him to be in this place where he could do these things? Well, on an infinitely greater level, the person, even the relatively moral good person, whose morality is disconnected from the source, that is cut off from the fountain, anything that now flows from the fountain of their life the thing that is worshipped there is human morality, human goodness, and it is, it is opposed to giving worship to God. So now that changes the view of that human, reality, that human morality. That human morality now turns from good works on earth to actual treason against God because it rejects God. So do you see that? That's why the Bible's so clear. There is none who is righteous. No, not one, Romans chapter 3. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's, that's why. That's why the world hates Jesus. 
Because Jesus isn't happy with our little morality. Jesus isn't happy with our good works. Jesus isn't pleased with the little things that we do where we just say, well, aren't you pleased with me in and of myself apart from trusting in him and worshiping him? Because at the root of human reality, morality is cosmic spiritual treason. So what can we learn from this? Two quick things. Let's end this before... We come to the table. Well, we, we learn something about salvation, don't we? Friends, it's a gift. Salvation isn't earned. We're dead in our sins, but we have been made alive. So if you are a believer here today, yes, God used means to get you to where you are. Yes, he may have used believing parents. He may have used the ministry of this church. He may have even given you an acquisitive mind to actually start reading the Bible. In fact, I, I met with a brother about a week ago who's becoming a member of this church. And he was talking about how just in God's providence, he started to be interested and started to hear the gospel. And then he started to open up the book of Romans. That's a good book to open up to. And he started to read it. And just by the work, the kind of one-on-one offense that the Holy Spirit was running on this guy, he came after him through the letter of Romans and God opened up his heart and saved him. Yes, God uses means, but friends, whether you grew up in a church as a good little church kid or whether you came to faith later in life, all of us ultimately have the same testimony. We were dead, and now by his grace, he made us alive. Salvation is a gift. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, and this is something the crowd hated, he said that the flesh, John 6 verse 63, the flesh is of no help at all. It's the spirit who gives life. Why did that anger the crowd? Because in our natural state, dear ones, we want credit. We want to look inside of ourselves and see something in us that should promote us above other people. And the good news of the gospel, the testimony of the Bible, will not allow that. So I don't care who you are, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care what type of family heritage you came from, I don't care how much money you have, all of us, all of us, come equally at level ground at the foot of the cross, needy, helpless. Nothing in my hands I bring, the song says, simply to that cross I cling. That's the testimony of every Christian, which should produce in us humility and worship. I've been thinking a lot. I mentioned at the beginning, I've been thinking a lot about Pastor Conrad's sermon last week. And he said that when Christians come into the house of the Lord, there should be a kind of combination of joy and solemnity. And just as an aside, I love the way he pronounced the word solemnity. I could listen to him read the phone book and be blessed. (laughs) There's this uh, old anecdotal story about George Whitfield, the great preacher of the, of the Great Awakening in America in the late 1700s, and it said that people would come under a conviction just by the way he pronounced the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> and I think some certain people are just so gifted that they have that juice, and Conrad has it. I know he does, and he spoke of how we should come in with a solemnity, a kind of 
humility in our worship. We come, we're thankful, we see people around us, we know, oh Lord, you've been so good to us. So we learn something about salvation, and finally, we learn something about culture and society and our mission. Friends, the world is not neutral. It's opposed to God, and God has left us here in this world. We live in a world that's opposed to God. Let me just briefly, before we end, read a little bit out of Romans 1. This is the world we live in. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. So there's a judgment against this world who's outside of Christ. Why? Because they're unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. We live in a world that calls up, down, and down, up. That calls right, wrong, and wrong, right. It is mixed up. It suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For, this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Friends, that's our world. People... We now have, now I, don't mean, I don't mean this is like red meat for the conservative crowd, so don't, don't think politically. Don't like, yeah, I'm glad Brad said something about this. Don't, don't, don't go there. That's, this, is, this is sad. But claiming to be wise, they became fools. We now have medical associations, like the American Academy of Pediatrics and others, that are so smart, but yet foolish, because they're telling us that a little child can choose their gender. Friends, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We're living in Romans 1, okay? We have a president of the United States who said that. And that's not a knock on him. I, it, it is a knock on him, but it's not like any previous guy was any better necessarily. It's just to say they claim to be wise and they're fools. They're fools. And he goes on in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the testimony of our world. It worships itself. We live in a world that worships ourselves, and we shake our fists at God. And that's why the world hates him. And now Jesus has left us in this culture. Why? Not so that we can be angry at it. Not so that we can sense that our comforts, our place of privilege as Christians is starting to slip away. So we're going to be angry about it. And we're going to put all of our hope in a political candidate. Friends, that is not the call for a Christian. It may to be, be involved in politics, but it's not to merely get angry at the death of the America that was more comfortable for us. That's not the call of the Christian. The call of the Christian is to be with Jesus on his side to be sent to this culture, this fallen world so that more people would come to know him, so that they would hear the powerful words of the gospel, so that their dead hearts would be made alive. Because if it happened for me and it happened for you, it can happen for anybody. 
We need to get as many people from the world to Jesus so they can hear about the Lord. We need to not be a comfortable church that just shows up every now and again and just kind of wants the preferences that we want. We need to be people who've been made alive and are so captivated by our salvation. We're so captivated by the fact that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son that we want everybody else to hear about it and we're not here as angry antagonists against the culture but as missionaries to it and we want people to know Jesus more than we want to complain about what we want to complain about. That's what we're here for, friends. That's why we're here. And so we're coming now to receive communion and we're taking this bread and we're taking this cup and we are receiving it. We're taking it in and we're saying, Jesus, my hope afresh. We're saying it again. And this meal's for believers. So if you're not a believer, we're not trying to exclude you or make you feel uncomfortable in any way. But we don't want to confuse you about where you are with the sovereign God of all. So we don't want you to do this if you're not trusting in Jesus as a Christian. This meal is for Christians. And when we take this bread and this cup every month, we are reaffirming. We are reconfessing that our only hope for right standing with God is not ourselves, but what Jesus did in his broken body and his spilled blood on the cross. That's what we're reaffirming. And we are not just saying just for salvation, but we are participating with him in his mission to be sent to this world that hates him as missionaries. So let's come now to do that. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back. The worship team's going to come back and lead us in a song. As you're ready, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table and receive this bread with this church family. Let me pray. Lord, the world hates you. We love you, but we want to love you better. And we want to love the world that you've sent us to and you've kept us in. Search our hearts now. If there is any wicked way in us, Lord, purge it. May it be burned up in the light of your grace and our repentance. And may we taste and see that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name.